This is the New England Journal of Medicine update on the coronavirus outbreak, February 14th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor, and I'm talking again with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Starting with you, Dr. Rubin, this week both the virus and the disease got new names. What, what does that mean? Well, as long as we're on the names category, can I just start by saying, I've known both of you for many years. Is it okay if I call you Steve and Lindsay? I'm going to assume that that's going to be true. So, as you said, we have new names. The disease is known as COVID-19, which is kind of cool, honestly. It's very distinctive, and it probably will fly. The virus is named by a group of taxonomists as SARS coronavirus 2, which seems a little difficult to me. Um, Usually when we have new viruses causing a new disease, we call them by a new name. This is not a new name, and although it certainly is very closely related to the virus that caused SARS, it's clearly a distinct syndrome and might cause a little bit of confusion. Nevertheless, this appears to be what will be the official name. And in part, I think that's related to there is a genetic relationship of 85 to 90 percent, although 10 to 15 percent genetic difference is a substantial amount. It does use a similar co-receptor as SARS, so I think that there are several features that the name does help highlight. But ultimately, there has to be a name, and that name was chosen in a way that minimized any negative repercussions to whatever it was named in relation to. So another thing that changed this week was the definition of the disease, at least in China. What are the implications of that? That's complicated. It's complicated in many ways. For one thing, the definition didn't change everywhere and didn't even change everywhere in China, but primarily in Hubei province, where most of the disease is right now. Instead of using a positive PCR test as definition of disease, instead Hubei has gone to a more clinical definition, largely driven by CT imaging of patients. Now, that might allow them to pick up more patients as testing has been rather limited. The tests aren't so widely available that everyone is being tested. On the other hand, viral pneumonias look like viral pneumonias on CT, and therefore the specificity of the test is questionable. So is there, in fact, no signature on imaging that indicates this disease rather than, as you say, other viral pneumonias? The imaging doesn't have a pathognomonic finding for COVID-19. However, there is some precedent for a syndromic diagnosis. For years, during flu season, when influenza is peaking in a given geographic locale and someone has flu-like symptoms, we know the probability of having flu is very high, so that it's not unheard of. On the other hand, what's incredibly challenging, as Eric already alluded to, is with a changing definition, then it becomes harder to compare case rates in different communities. And we also do not understand how this disease fully behaves, how this pathogen behaves, so that we have to be very careful about what assumptions and inferences we bring to our approach. And Steve, as you mentioned, the CT signature, there isn't. It is a viral pneumonia with a variety of different patterns on imaging consistent with how we know viruses behave, respiratory viruses. And in the setting of a explosive epidemic, it likely is correct, but it's not specific. I think that there's another issue here, too, which uh, we discussed a bit last week, which is that using a clinical syndromic definition like this misses everybody who got infected but isn't exhibiting these symptoms. 
We don't know how many there are. We don't know how important they are in transmission of the disease, but we already know that they play a role. Uh, and so this definition is really the tip of the tip of the iceberg of disease. So we're missing quite a lot of the total burden of disease. So speaking of transmissibility and the way the pathogen behaves, what's the update on that? What's the community transmission, nosocomial transmission? What's happening? Well, I mean, I think Eric sort of already explored the concept, which is we are currently diagnosing cases because they present with illness. And if we take a step back and remember this pathogen didn't exist six to eight weeks ago in any way that we think about it. So that the community has rapidly figured out that there is a novel syndrome, there is a novel pathogen, it's been cultured, it's been sequenced, that has been shared, but that's only four to five weeks ago. Diagnostics, which come from those sequences, which allow PCR and other techniques to specifically diagnose it, have only emerged over the last several weeks. And as we look at the case count in the 60,000s, that is the scale up of creating the diagnostic, validating it, manufacturing to scale, distributing everywhere it is needed, and then deploying it in a reliable way is a tremendous undertaking. And tens of thousands of tests must be done daily to have thousands be positive. And they have to be done locally. So I think that the bias currently is diagnosis is largely for those who are sicker, as it should be, which means we don't know the spectrum of mild, asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic subclinical disease because that is a second priority to severe disease. That becomes incredibly important in understanding transmission dynamics because if the majority of the transmission, perhaps, is occurring in the less sick, not the severely sick, which is very different than SARS, then it totally changes our understanding of the infection force and how the disease is spreading. And so we need to scale up diagnostics and really understand what the spectrum of less than severe, mild to moderate disease is in the community to begin to understand the transmission dynamics. I'd add that transmission is not simply a function of the virus. As Lindsay says, there are many other factors involved, and those include the clinical illness that's induced by infection. And remember that while it's not impossible that there are asymptomatic people who don't spread disease, it looks likely that there are asymptomatic people who do spread disease. And yet the likelihood of transmission may be quite a bit lower from those people than from people who are coughing and producing lots of secretions. So there's probably a gradient of risk. The other, of course, factor is simply human behavior. How much are people with the virus being clustered with people who don't have the virus? And we have seen a couple of these closed communities, like famously the cruise ship, where transmission can occur very efficiently simply because of proximity. Along those lines, Eric, as we also know in the hospital and nosocomial environment, where one may have sicker individuals, it is reasonable to think they may have a higher viral load for a longer period of time and perhaps be more infectious or significantly infectious, and that one has outbreaks and transmission in the nosocomial setting if you don't have the proper equipment to minimize that. Whether that is the major role of how this virus is spreading, is it that small number of individuals who are highly infectious or a larger number of individuals who are less infectious? That is a number that has to be scientifically assessed to understand the transmission dynamics.
Whichever is the case, healthcare workers do appear to be at particular risk. So what could be done to protect them? And that, again, gets to the issue of proper infection control practice. So we understand the transmission. Is it respiratory droplet? Are there other manners of spread? There are some that have said it may be in the stool and there may be fecal transmission, which has not been established but has been raised. So we have to understand where virus is replicating and being shed and then make sure that those pathways are contained. In the hospital environment, routine protective wear and access to it, gloves, masks, those features are critical and they need to be available to all healthcare workers who are caring for patients or suspected patients. Infection control has two aspects. One, of course, is choosing the right protective equipment to prevent transmission. And that, as Lindsay says, is dictated to a large extent by how transmission occurs for that particular virus, for that particular agent. The other part is a consciousness raising, though, by having people suit up and gown up and all, even if some of those steps aren't so important, it continues to make them conscious of how important it is to try to avoid infection. It's not so easy with many infections, and it looks like the number of healthcare workers that have been infected in China, particularly in Hubei province right now, is very large and increasing. And I think, again, we have to think of the scale. The ability to scale up protective wear and deliver it to the healthcare providers who need it. And I think the frontline providers in China are overwhelmed with the number of cases and the response that they are stepping up to do and how to make sure that they have the equipment to protect themselves. And there's a substantial supply chain issue. And as one shuts down a city and shuts down trafficking for thoughtful reasons, one has to also think of the consequences of getting the right equipment to the people who need it. What about the spread of infection outside China? You mentioned the cruise ship in Japan. How does the rest of the world look? Well, one thing is certainly clear. There's nothing magic about being in China. There are many instances of disease transmission in other countries. A couple of principles, I think, that come out. Number one, the more you look, the more disease you find. And as asymptomatic people have been screened in these contained situations, those people who are being evacuated, for example, from Wuhan and the rest of Hubei province, you find more disease because asymptomatic people can be infected and, as Lindsay was saying, potentially transmit infection. The second thing is that, as I said, there's no magic. One question I think always has been is, are there cofactors involved in disease transmission that are present in China? We don't know because we don't know the rate of transmission, yet there certainly can be people infected outside of the country. Finally, there are several places in the world that simply aren't testing, and therefore they haven't found any transmission. And it's an excellent way to control disease is to not know that it's there. And you know, there have already been 400 cases outside of China. There have been multiple chains of transmission in multiple different countries so that the virus is working hard to establish itself globally. And I think, as Eric said, the issue of diagnostic scale-up is, are the diagnostics available, scaled up and available in all the different jurisdictions that need to do proper surveillance? I think an issue that was a little different with SARS, SARS had two sort of notable features. One feature was the super spreader concept. And are there super spreaders with this virus? We don't know yet. The other with SARS was infectiousness was significantly associated with severe illness and days into illness. 
with this virus, it looks like there may be infectiousness with a very mild set of symptoms. And that changes transmission dynamics, as we sort of discussed earlier. But it's not well defined. So there needs to be more systematic assessments to understand that form of transmission dynamic, in which case it's a lot easier for the virus to get on an airplane with someone who feels well and potentially be transmissible, again, as we've seen in 400 cases that have already occurred. Many countries, like the U.S. Uh, across Europe, have very aggressive quarantine containment systematic assessment protocols. That will become harder to sustain if transmission is beyond a specific jurisdiction such as China. And so over the next weeks to months, it'll become very clear if this virus has a lot more transmission outside of the epicenter. The World Health Organization convened an international meeting this week of coronavirus experts. Has anything come out of that meeting? Is there any international effort? I mean, the World Health Organization is working very hard to bring the countries together to understand the facts of what's going on, how to coordinate a response from understanding the epidemiology, the transmission dynamics, diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines. And there are many efforts on all those fronts coordinated through the World Health Organization as well as through the major countries engaged. I think that it points out the fact, though, that our understanding of what's going on remains limited. And those limitations have significant consequences for how we can control disease. We're still at the point, and I think we mentioned this last week, of various jurisdictions choosing their own strategies for controlling disease. And so far, we don't know which ones will work. So we're very much in the experimental phase. It would be simple if we knew what to do, and then the WHO had the task of trying to get people to implement it. But we're not there yet, so it is quite a difficult time for those responsible for public health. And along those lines, the free flow of information is incredibly important, so that when an individual is found to be infected, how do you inform who they were interacting with yesterday or the day before, particularly if they had just returned from traveling? And so the flow of information across countries is very important to know that when a case is identified, the jurisdiction they were in yesterday can be alerted to do appropriate case finding. And that's where lowering the barrier for the flow of information across countries is critically important to being able to respond rapidly. Finally, a question that remains front and center. Where do we stand in the search for treatment and potentially a vaccine? I think there are real prospects. Um, one of the encouraging things about treatment is that there are existing drugs that, at least in vitro, have activity against this virus. And so we should be able to move rapidly into clinical testing of these. In addition, there's pretty good evidence from other coronaviruses that there are protective antibody responses, which makes it likely that a vaccine is possible for this disease. Moving to a vaccine will take a very long time. And antiviral medications, I think if we extrapolate from influenza, for example, are much more effective during the early stages of infection than in the people who become quite ill. So there are significant limitations to the use of antivirals, which might well be true for this infection. But we're making progress in that. Um, we won't see a vaccine for a while, though. I mean, I think that there are certain features of this outbreak that lend hope in that, as Eric said, there are a couple of compounds that have in vitro activity and therefore may have activity against COVID-19 and are shelf ready in that we already have them manufactured and we have safety data because we've used them in other settings. 
So the challenge is, is how do we enable our colleagues in China to do rigorous investigation to determine if these agents work while they're responding to a humanitarian crisis? This is a little different than Ebola, where there are challenges there, but the case rate in Ebola is less frequent and more geographically dispersed. Here, there are large numbers of cases in concentrated areas. And how do we enable our Chinese investigators and colleagues to do systematic research to determine which, if any, of the potential compounds do work? Because that would be a tremendous advance. And as Eric said, something may work when you have a mild cold and not work when you have a severe respiratory failure on intubation and life support. So part of what has to be sorted out is when in the viral infectious cycle might a compound be therapeutically beneficial. So it's complicated, but it's imminently approachable and approachable over the next weeks to months. It's just how do we enable our colleagues to do the studies. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric, for this update.